Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. O Master who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures. Instill in us also the fear of your blessed commandments that we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God, and to you we give glory together with your Father and your all-holy, gracious, and life-giving Spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, all right, we've got a lot to cover today. I want you to turn your Bibles to Mark uh, 1, 1 uh, verse 14. Mark 1, 14. And you'll notice right above Mark 1, 14 is the baptism of Christ. And we know that once Jesus was baptized, where did He go? He went out into the desert for the temptation. 40 days in the desert. And following those 40 days in the desert, where did He go? Where did he go? He went up into Galilee. We see that in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the, in the gospel. Now, I had shown you this slide last uh, week, and this is the Valley of the Doves coming down from what city? Nazareth, right? And running right along the sea is a highway called the Way of the Sea. The way that basically, if you, you can follow that highway all the way along the Fertile Crescent, it was the great trade route, and it ran right through where Jesus was going to, uh, to live out the, the years of his ministry on this earth. Right here through Galilee. We're going to spend the rest of our time here tonight mostly spent right here in this spot. And I want you to memorize it. I want it to be yours. It needs to be your home. You need to know when you come around a, 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 a a, a turn in the sea, where you're going to, what you're going to see next, how long it took Jesus to walk there, and so forth. Um, we see that way of the sea running right there, okay? And I'll just show you a couple important cities you need to know. Capernaum is the most important city. Capernaum sits right there on the edge. This is that valley we're watching, the Valley of the Doves right there. Okay, coming down to the sea and coming up through Gennesaret, which we're going to talk about tonight, to Capernaum. And between Gennesaret and Capernaum is Tabga. Tabga is the place of the springs. Okay, the place of the springs. And we'll talk more about that. We'll also see Chorazin up here and Bethsaida. You remember those from the Gospel, Chorazin and Bethsaida. This is what they call the Jesus Triangle from Capernaum to Chorazin to Bethsaida. This was where he lived out his ministry um, and we'll spend most of our time there um, this evening. So a little closer shot because he comes up here into Galilee and he, and he, comes, he comes into the, into the town of Capernaum. And let's just take a look at that in, uh, in verse 16 now. Now after John, sorry, verse 16, and passing along by the sea, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting their net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you, uh, 
sorry, I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they, they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, many in the nets. So immediately he comes into Galilee and he begins calling his apostles. And where does he go to call his apostles? He goes right to the water. And there he finds the apostles fishing. Okay? This is again that area. So he came through the valley of the doves. He comes right up the coast heading north. Just north of Capernaum is where the, where the Jordan River comes in. And this is where he's going to spend his time. Tabga, where the springs enter the, into the sea. The cave of the, so, or the cove of the sower or the bay of the parables. The Mount of Beatitudes and Capernaum itself. Okay, and Jesus comes out uh, up from the north after his baptism, after his 40 days in the desert, and comes here to Tabga. And there in Tabga, where the springs just come pouring out of the, the ground, you can go to the Sea of Galilee, and this spring just comes gushing out of a maybe a 15 or 20 foot high cliff on the side of the lake. Um, and I have a little picture of, of I'm studying the Bible there with a few, in fact, the DRE from here from the Holy Spirit. Uh, with us that day on the sea. And you can see the quantity of water that's just pouring into the sea. When I discovered this spot, I couldn't believe it because there's no signs. I had seen it in a book. I knew it existed. I knew generally within a five-mile range where it was. And I went out early in the morning, like 5 a.m., because I needed to teach a Bible study to our group on the calling of the apostles. I said, i got to find this spring. So I left my wife in the hotel room, and I went out walking. And there I found I could hear it from the road. And I found a little trail down to the water. Um, it is an amazing place. And the first thing you notice, if how many of you love to camp? And I mean really camp, not like you know RVs and stuff, real camping. Yeah. Okay. And what do you know? If you find a spring that's good for drinking, what do you know? What's the key thing you're looking for? Water, yes. What is the one thing you test that water? And how do you test it? Uh, clarity, yes. Cold. It's got to be cold, freezing cold. And if you know it's cold, it hasn't been out of the ground very long. And if it's, if it's out of the ground, of course, animals can die in it and disease can kick in, right? So you want freezing, freezing cold water. Well, I, you know, I'm a camp. I love camping. At least when my wife's laughing back there. When I was young, I liked camping. And, um, and um, when I got to the spring, the first thing I noticed was it wasn't cold. But it, I had to go check the source. It's gushing out of, the, out of the ground, and it's not cold. It's a few degrees warmer than the sea itself. And why is this important? Because the fish of the Sea of Galilee love that warm water. And if you go there today, you can see the fish teeming at the base of these springs. In fact, my wife and I, on the last morning we were there, went down to the spring right where our hotel was, and there they, these big catfish were just like... I couldn't, and it looked like eels. They were huge, and they were kind of flopping over each other. This is where the fishermen fish. In fact, when I went down that morning, I was there for about two minutes before someone showed up, and who do you think showed up? A local Palestinian boy with his fishing rod. And he went out there and started fishing. This is the place, the traditional location, the colony of the apostles. Why? Because this is where the fishermen of the area fish. Furthermore, this is where they clean their nets because they have running water pouring down and they can stick their nets under there and clean it of all the gunk they picked up when they were fishing. Okay, And notice what it says, that they were there, Zebedee and John, his brothers, who were in the boat, mending their nets. All right, And so this is the traditional location of the calling of the apostles. Jesus will now make his way from this area, Tabga, 
uh, right up here into Capernaum, which is what? Um, a half an hour walk. Am I right? A half an hour walk. Look at verse 21. And they came into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching. In Capernaum today, it's called the town of Jesus because Capernaum was his main headquarters. It became his home in, along the Sea of Galilee. Um, and there you can go visit the town still today. And there's the synagogue where Jesus preached. This is actually a synagogue which was built a few centuries after Christ. But uh, if you go there today, you can see the, the dark basalt rock. That base is the base of the synagogue that Jesus preached in. And this, the synagogue that's there now that is quite, quite ancient um, is sitting on the exact footprint. You stand on the floor of that synagogue. You're standing where Jesus stood. And notice what it says. He entered the synagogue and they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as a, one of the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? And we talked last time about the meaning of that word, the importance of that word, the descendant of the, of the, of the tribe of Judah and the descendant of David. Okay, the shoot which will come forth from Jesse. We talked about that as Isaiah 11 last week. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Notice the first thing that Jesus does as he comes into his ministry in Capernaum is he confronts the evil spirits. His kingship and the anointing which he just revealed to the world at the Jordan River was an anointing to become king, not simply of this world, but king of the universe. And so he, he immediately goes after the root problem because his dominion, his dominion is going to be all about restoring us to our original relationship with God. And that's going to mean driving the dominion of the devil out of us. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. And all were amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching? With authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the, the surrounding region of Galilee. I want you to pay attention to that. His fame spread throughout Galilee. This is going to be critical for what Jesus is going to do in the next few stories. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay sick with a fever. Now in Capernaum, we still have the original location of Peter's house. It's, it's known because... The early Christians built an octagon church or an octagon chapel, very small, on the spot. So you know how far it was for Jesus to drive out that unclean spirit, walk out of that synagogue, the door of that synagogue is right here, and walk no more than, what, a hundred feet, maybe a hundred and fifty feet to Peter's house. Okay, this gives you a little bit of the vision of what's going on because notice in verse 29, he immediately left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew. It's virtually next door. Okay? 
Now Simon's mother-in-law lay sick with a fever and immediately told him of her and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she, and, and she served them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick uh, or possessed with demons and the whole city was gathered together about the door and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out demons and they, he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So you can imagine Jesus comes out of the synagogue probably filled with people uh, having driven out the demon from the demoniac and they're just crowding around him. He makes his way then to Peter's house and it's so small they can't get in. The whole town begins to crowd and not only the whole town, but it says his fame began to spread everywhere. Imagine you have an aunt or a cousin or a brother and sister that's living along the sea. What are you going to do? You're going to go run and get him and bring him and all of a sudden Capernaum was inundated inundated with people that wanted to be healed. And Jesus, uh, in the morning, verse 35, and in the morning, a great while before day, he rose and went out to a lonely place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him followed him. Oh, there's a nice, uh, I, I forgot I had that, um, that slide. Uh, there's the, the image of Peter's house, okay, the octagon, and then a later octagon church built around the original octagon. Today, there's another church on top of that, um, which you can then go and see into the house itself. And I'm completely off my notes, so let me figure out where I'm supposed to be here so I don't uh, waste your time and mine and skip stuff. So he got up early in the morning, and it says he went to a lonely place. Most often the times when Jesus left Capernaum to go to the lonely place, which we know the location of today, he took a boat. So I found this nice little picture for you of a boat on the Sea of Galilee at sunrise. Uh, I also want to include that because that's me on the Sea of Galilee at sunrise. Let me tell you, reading the scriptures and reading this text as the sun rises on the sea is one of the most amazing experiences. Um, he made his way out of Capernaum, and, and whether he went on the road or on the sea at that point, we don't know, but came back down here to Tabgah. Um, and near Tabgah, right where he had called the apostles, just above... Um, uh, right here, okay, here's another location we know. Right here is about where that spring is, and right above it is a little cave in the hillside. That cave is known by the locals as the place where Jesus loved to go and hide himself away from the crowd and pray. There's something very beautiful about this cave, and um, it, notice that it says that in verse 36, Simon and those who were with him followed him. And I have a picture of being up in that cave, um, with some people, and I just want to count it off for you. Uh, there's a few spots you can't see, but one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and there's a spot next to them, 10, 11, 12, 13. The cave is the perfect size for him and his 12 apostles. It is, uh, it, it's quite beautiful. All right. In verse 39, verse 39. He went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Come down with me now to chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. I do want to say one more thing. I'm sorry. Before we go to chapter 2, verse 1. He, once he makes his way up into this cave and prays, Matthew tells us a little more about the story and that it's at this point most likely that Jesus delivers 
um, uh, his Sermon on the Mount. Okay, and I, I don't want to look at it too closely. We don't have time tonight, but I just want you to notice that here's the, the the Church of the Beatitudes. The traditional location of his Sermon on the Mount is right here in this swale, and this spot right down here is where that spring is and where that cave is. So Jesus would have had to simply come out of that cave and come up here to the ridge of the hill and over for his Sermon on the Mount. Okay, it's the, the location is quite perfect. And if you can imagine the numbers of people that were following him at the time, um, you can see here, it's another view of it, okay, it's the same, the same area, different view of it, there's the church. But notice this natural amphitheater right here. And the first time I was there, the guide I was there said that when the wind comes off of the sea, uh, Jesus' voice, you would think of him standing at the top and teaching down, but no, to turn around, to let his voice be carried up and to have the people then seat, seated in that beautiful amphitheater. Jesus will make his way then um, to, uh, back to Capernaum. I do want to go to Matthew. I do want to go to Matthew. Come with me to Matthew 11. Matthew 11, verse 1 through 7. Matthew 11 fits into the story like this. The, the Sermon on the Mount takes place, but you know the Sermon on the Mount is followed by all sorts of instructions. Um, and, and you don't have to turn there, but I can kind of do it for you and read to you. He, sa- he tells um, those who are listening, he says, Beware of the practices of the Pharisees. Um, uh, when you fast... Um, and so when you pray, this is how you do it. He says, uh, uh, judge not that you may not be judged. Beware of false prophets. Jesus is teaching his, his, his uh, Sermon on the Mount and those teachings which follow it, I believe, to his closest apostles primarily. He's giving them instructions for what he's about to do. And what he's about to do is go send them out in their ministry. Okay, And when he sends them out in his ministry, it says that they went out to towns, they drove out demons, and they healed the sick. Jesus is now giving to his apostles the gift of his own dominion. And notice in chapter 11, verse 1, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you he who is to come, or shall we look for another? Are you the Messiah or not? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. In other words, the proof that Jesus is king is this. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. You remember, some of you who did our study during Gaudete Sunday about the the preaching of good news to the poor. Remember the release in the year, uh, the Jubilee year, that was to be given to the people before the Babylonian exile, and the kings had not done it. Jesus says, you want to know, you want proof that I am the king? They receive their sight, and they walk, they are healed, the demons are driven out, and the poor are finally given release from their slavery. Okay, Why is this critically important? 
Why is this so much the proof that Jesus needs to prove to John and others that he is the king? If you want to go there, you can. I'm going to flip to the, to the prophet Malachi, the last prophet in the Old Testament. The prophet Malachi. And what does the prophet Malachi say in his final words in chapter, uh, chapter 4? Chapter 4, verse 1. If some of you may not have chapter 4 in your Bibles, if you have a new American, it will be the last few verses of chapter 3. Malachi chapter 4. If you're not there, just listen to this because these are the words that would have been ringing in their ears when they're looking for the coming of the Messiah. And this is what Malachi says. For behold, the day comes, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. In other words, when the Son of Righteousness comes... When the Lord comes, when the Messiah comes, He will come to do one thing, and that is to heal His people. John uses that text, that vision that the the Jews at the time would have, and says, here's your proof, John, that I am the Messiah. Okay. Let's come back then to Mark. To Mark chapter... We're going to be flipping a lot tonight, guys, so don't get frustrated. You can just flip with me. It's okay. We'll get through it together. Mark chapter... Um, oh. chapter 2 verse 1 chapter 2 verse 1 and when he returned when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so there would be no longer room for them not even about the door And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic and carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. Okay, and again, there's the the synagogue coming out of the synagogue there through the door of the synagogue to Peter's house. The church which is built over it right now architecturally is a disaster. It's, It's quite ugly. However, however, it is really well done in one particular way, and that is that it stands up on pillars and has a glass floor in the middle. So you can literally stand there looking down into Peter's house where they ripped the roof off and lowered the paralytic down. It's quite an amazing place. And notice in verse 13, verse 13, he went out again beside the sea. And again, coming out of Peter's house then, He makes his way to the sea. How far is it? Maybe a, I don't know, a two-minute walk. It's a blink of the eye. It's, It's literally right there. He comes out to the sea. And all the crowds were gathered around him. He taught them. And as he passed on, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now you tell me, why is it that Jesus can go down to the edge of the water where the fishermen are, and who's got a booth set up? The tax collector. What in the world is, is, is Levi thinking? You know, on, the, on the edge of the water? Uh, taxing the fishermen, maybe. But there's something more. There's something more. And that is that Capernaum is on the very north, sorry, right here, on this northern tip 
of the sea. It is the first point where the way of the sea hits the water. And what do you think those people that have been walking through, yes, uh, August in the Holy Land, okay, where it's hot, um, where are they going to go? They're going to go right down to the water. And that's exactly where he set up his tax booth, right on this way of the sea, so he could tax the travelers coming through. It makes a lot of sense. Okay? You see why this is so fundamentally important? We've heard these stories over and over again, but we, we say, well, that's a nice story about Jesus. But when you actually understand where he was, why he went there, and why the story and how the story fits together, it makes all the difference in the world. Verse 18. Now, John's disciples... John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and the people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. <coughs> the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they, on that day they will fast. Come on down to verse 23 with me. On the Sabbath... He was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck ears of grain. Okay, again, Capernaum and the synagogue, Tabga, where he called the apostles. And what is in between, if you come up onto this hill where he preached the Beatitudes? What's there, guys? Yeah, the, the soil is very, very rich. And today, you can go there, and wheat is grown on that hillside. Um, and there's a, there's a place. Some of you have walked there with me before. The first time I walked up, they're going to take a bus up there. I jumped off the bus. I said, I'll meet you up at the top. And I, and I started walking along there, and I couldn't believe what I found, um, which were wheat fields, the same wheat fields Jesus would have walked through on that Sabbath day. But something I never knew about wheat. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I've never really eaten wheat, you know what I mean? I've never plucked wheat when it really looks like when it's growing in fertile soil. The wheat that grows there is quite amazing. The kernels are huge. And you can pluck those kernels and strip out the wheat from in there. And when it is fresh, it, it's not hard. Um, it's like a... It's like a um, uh, What's the, a sunflower seed, exactly. Thank you. A sunflower seed, that, and, it's, and it's wonderful. If you eat enough of that, it's enough of a snack to get you kind of along the way. So you can imagine, they're out there in the fields in this, in this hillside here. I'm going to go backwards in these hillsides, and they're, they're a little hungry. They're away from Capernaum. They're away from home, and they just start plucking some wheat. They're, um, they're on that hillside. Um, it's... Uh, Again, very beautiful and makes sense of the story. And notice what's going to happen here now. Uh, one Sabbath he was going through the grain field, and as they made their way, the disciples began to pluck ears of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God uh, when Abithar was high priest and ate the bread of the presence which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. Jesus is going to start to go uh, uh, after the, the Pharisees on this point. On the day of the Sabbath, what is the Sabbath for? What is the Sabbath for? What did God do on that great Sabbath day of creation? Yeah, He, he rested. He, thank you, Bob. All right. He blessed his creation. And when, a, when the creation is blessed, when a thing is blessed, what happens to it? 
What happens? Yeah, it becomes holy. huh? It's, and holiness is an attribute of God. When a thing is blessed, it's filled with the life of God. This is why we kiss and, we, and try to touch the holy things. huh? So that we can receive, even from these things, God's own life. This is why, the way God designed it in the very beginning. That we would come into contact with the creation and be filled up with His life. The Pharisees have lost the very point of what the Sabbath was all about. The Sabbath was about filling creation with God's life, perfecting creation. So it is on the Sabbath, the Sabbath par excellence, the thing to do is to fill the things of creation with God's life. Jesus again and again is going to meet his creation. And, and most of all, he's going to meet those who are made in his image and likeness. He's going to find people who can't see. He's going to find people who can't walk. He's going to find people filled with demons. People lacking that gift of God's life and his perfection. And he, as king, and as the one who has dominion over creation, is going to set that creation in order, yes, on the Sabbath day, because that is what the Sabbath day is for. Chapter 3, verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and we guess here that the synagogue is Capernaum. This is the area he's working in. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand, and they watched him to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. And he said to them, he said to the man who had a withered hand, come here. And he said, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? Do you understand what Jesus is going after? He's trying to bring out for them the whole meaning of the Sabbath. Okay, and of course you know what he does. He goes ahead and heals the man. And notice in verse 6, the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Okay, and who are the Herodians? Come on, from last week, who are the Herodians, do you think? We didn't really talk about the Herodians, but I think you guys can guess. Remember, there's Herod the Great, right? And remember, Herod divides his kingdom into his three sons, okay? Or maybe even four sons he divides it, but the key three sons that we're talking about are Archelaus in Judea, right? Uh, Herod Antipas in Galilee, and Philip II across the Jordan, in that area across the Jordan, you remember that. The Herodians are those that are living in the court of Herod Antipas. Okay? And notice what they're going to do. They went out and immediately held counsel with Herodians against him how to destroy him. So now the Pharisees and the court of Herod are together. Okay? They've joined an unholy union. So what happens in verse 7? Jesus withdrew with his disciples okay this is going to be fundamental to understand uh the movement of christ i, I didn't give you a couple of verses here but there's a a man pl plucking that grain um he comes back into that synagogue then heals the man with the withered hand uh and then has this this argument and immediately it says then jesus withdrew uh with his disciples to the sea and a great multitude from Galilee followed. And notice how many people now Jesus is attracting. Also from Judea, from Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, hearing all that he did, came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they <coughs> should crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed upon him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits beheld him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Uh, for time's sake, I'm going to come to chapter 4, verse 1. 
And with this massive crowd, crowd around him, Jesus says in verse, or, uh, Mark says, again he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he taught them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground. Okay? Now, we're in the context, obviously, the attack that just happened, right? Where they're plucking the wheat. And he begins to use the same imagery. And we have the location where Jesus went out on that boat. That was, by the way, a picture. I, one of those mornings, I got up in the sea, and there was this guy, and he started fishing right outside where I was staying. It was... It was quite, quite amazing. Um, Capernaum and the location of the, of the cove of the sower or the bay of the parables, right in between the, Tabga and Capernaum. And you can see a little closer here the scene. And when I go back in August, I've got to go check this out. I don't know if you can see that or not. But there's an old broken down building. I bet you anything that's a church. I bet you anything that's a church. The Bay of the Parables. Notice, what do you think of that Bay of the Parables? What it, what does it uh, make you think of? What's that? Someone say a theater. Yeah, exactly. I'll read you from um, from Bargell Pixner, whose book I referenced last time. He says, once again, Mark tells us of a large crowd that gathered around Jesus. They pressed around him uh, by the lakeside. The crowd that gathered around was so large they got into a boat. For the location of this offshore sermon, local tradition points to a distinctive bay, which lends a vivid and suitable background to the story. The bay or inlet, also called the Bay of the Parables, lies halfway between Tabgun and Capernaum. The land slopes down like a Roman theater around the bay. Even today, this natural formation possesses astonishing acoustics, which have been scientifically investigated. It has been proven that Jesus' voice could have carried effortlessly from the floating pulpit to a crowd of several thousand people on the shore. In his first parable, Jesus spoke about the seed being sown by the sower. One part thereof fell along the path, some fell on rocky places or fell among thorns, and still other seed fell on good soil. Jesus' audience found themselves sitting in exactly the right setting to be able to vividly imagine what he was saying. Along the road to Capernaum, there is much rocky ground, and plenty of thorns and thistles can be seen. Moreover, the black earth, a product of the disintegration of the basalt stone, is particularly fertile. So the whole area is this mixture of, of barren, rocky soil with thorns growing, and right next to it, extremely fertile land. Okay, so again, it makes a lot of sense out of what Jesus is talking about. We come then to Mark chapter 4, verse 35. What do you think, as we get into this, what do you think um, is, is happening behind the scene now? Jesus has been in the synagogues. He's been healing. He's, now he's confronted the Pharisees head on. And what did the Pharisees do when he confronted them about the Sabbath? They ran to the Herodians. Okay? And we know something about Herod Antipas. We know something about his father. And they are murderers. What do you think is going, beyond, beyond, going on behind the scene? In fact, Mark has already told us 
they have been talking with the Herodians about how they might destroy him. Verse 35, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, he took with, him, with them uh, just as he was in the boat and the other boats that were with him. And a great storm of wind arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care if we perish? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you no faith? And they were filled with awe and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Oh, I had a nice slide there for you, actually, of the, uh, yeah, of the, I found that online. I thought that was very nice. Again, I want to show you, uh, share with you a text from uh, Pixner. He says, What prompted Jesus on the evening after the sermon by the lake to say, Let us go over to the other side? Was it missionary zeal suddenly awakened or a deliberate challenge to the powers of the underworld? I believe there's two reasons why Jesus leaves Capernaum and the place where he was preaching to go to the other side. To go to the other side, I don't know if I've got the slide here. I hope I do. Uh, to go to the other side is to go to the other side of the Jordan. Okay? To go to the other side is to go to the other side of the Jordan. And Jesus is now going to sail across the sea to the other side. And this time he's going to go to the land of the Gerasenes. First of all, first of all, Jesus has come to confront the powers of the underworld. And we see him now confronting as he crosses the stormy seas, calming the winds, preparing for his ministry. He's going to get out of that boat. And he's going to find the demoniac among the Gerasenes and he will drive out the legion of demons into the pigs who will go running off the cliff. The cliff on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the land of the Gerasenes, was not controlled by the Jews. It was a land of pagans. And Jesus immediately goes there, and this is Pixner's point, is he goes there with missionary zeal to continue to drive out the devil from his grip on mankind. But there is a second reason, I believe. And it has everything to do with Herod. Prior, prior to Jesus' confrontation on the issue of the Sabbath, Jesus didn't tell any of the people he healed to be quiet. But as soon as Jesus confronts the Pharisees, he suddenly begins to tell those around him, the thousands, the crowds which he's healing, don't tell anyone what's going on. And the reason he's doing this, I believe, is because Herod and the Pharisees have begun to plot for his arrest and his execution like they has, had executed John the Baptist. Jesus goes to the other side, to the land of the Gerasenes. And who controls the other side of the Jordan River? Philip II. This is why we laid that groundwork last week. Um, let's look at, at, at chapter 5, verse 17. Chapter 5, verse 17. 
after he's driven out the demons and into the swine, it says they began to beg Jesus to depart from their neighborhood. And as he was getting into the moat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus refused and said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, this whole area, how, how much Jesus had done for him and all the men marveled. Jesus does two, tells two different things to different people. He's constantly telling one group of people to be silent and another group of people to, to yell it from the rooftop. Well, what do we know about Jesus' ministry at this point in Galilee? The Herodians are after him. And what do we know about Jesus' ministry now in this area on the other side? It's the first time he's gone there. There's no political consequences. They're not even looking for him. So what does he do? He says, get out there and preach the good news of what God has done to you. Proclaim it aloud. In verse 21, chapter 5, verse 21, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. What's the other side? It's the other side of the Jordan. So he's going to come back now from the land of the Gerasenes into the area of Capernaum. He crossed again the boat to the other side. A great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then, he came, then came one of the rulers, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and besought him, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him. And there was a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians. Okay, Jesus is going to to heal this woman and then come to Jairus' house and heal his daughter. And I want you to look with me at verse 43. Just as he heals the little girl, what does he say in verse 43? He strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Huh? So on one side of the sea where Jesus is free, he says, proclaim it loudly. On the other side, he says, don't say a word. He knows, he knows that he cannot be arrested there. He must be arrested and crucified in Jerusalem. Okay. This is the end of Jesus' first journey. And notice in chapter 6, verse 1, it says that he went away from there and came to his own country. And his disciples followed him. What's his own country? Nazareth, exactly. And we looked at this test last week. Keep your hand there in Mark and flip with me to Luke. After Mark, of course. Luke 4. Okay, keep your hand in Mark and flip with me to Luke chapter 4. Remember, Jesus goes to Nazareth, goes into the synagogue, proclaims the year of release, okay? He opens the scroll, you remember this, okay? And look in verse 23, and he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician heal yourself, what we have heard you do in Capernaum, do also here in your own country. Okay, so now we know, Jesus has been there in Capernaum, healing people, healing the demoniacs, healing the paralytics, healing the mind, even going over to the land of the Gerasenes, and now he comes back to Nazareth, and they've heard all about what he's been doing. Okay? All right, now, it's in this context, we turn back to Mark, to chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 14. 
King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the baptizer has been raised from the dead. That is why these powers are at work in him. But others said it is Elijah, and others said it is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So John, uh, Jesus, Herod believes that Jesus is John raised from the dead. For Herod had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Remember Philip's the other guy on the other side of Jordan because he had married her. And now we get the story of the beheading of John the Baptist. Okay, So we know now the conversation taking place behind the scene. Okay, We know now that, that, that John had been arrested and by this time he had killed John. He'd beheaded him. And now John's come back. What do you think Herod's going to want to do to the new John? He's going to want to kill him. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Okay, verse 30. Chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourself to a lonely place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a lonely place by themselves. Again, I showed you that, um, that, that, uh, that spot on, I believe I have it here. Yeah, the cave. The cave. Okay, that is the, the traditional site of the lonely place, the place where Jesus likes to go. But I'll come back here because he sailed from Capernaum, came down the coast just that little ways, and he put to shore right here, okay, right where that spring is, because right, we know that because right above the spring is where that cave is where Jesus, um, where Jesus liked to pray. And when he got out of the boat, he stood right here in this area, and what happened? Verse 33. Now many saw them going and knew them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And he landed, he saw a great throng. So did he ever make it to his place to pray? No, he didn't. He got out of the boat and it's just absolutely inundated with people. Okay? And it grew late, verse 35. And his apostle says, send them away. And Jesus says, no, in verse 37. And he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy, two, and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves have you had? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fishes. Okay, This will be the first multiplication of loaves. There's two multiplications of the loaves. But this first one takes place right here as he gets out of the water. And there's a huge group of people. And that's the church right there that you can go to today, to the place. And there's a stone there. He comes there. The stone is there. You can go visit it today. And what do you think? What do you think the Pharisees and the Herodians are thinking? Thousands and thousands of people are coming to him. And what does he do? He makes the situation worse. He makes the situation worse. He feeds them. And it's in this context that John 6 is written. And we can turn then to John 6. Okay, Matthew, uh, Mark, Luke, and John. John 6, and notice in John 6, verse 9. Verse 9. And there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fishes. 
But what are so many? What are they among so many? It's believed by biblical scholars that John actually takes both multiplications and combines them in one. And the reason it's believed is that this multiplication, the five loaves and two fishes, the other one's going to be a different number. Okay, But this particular multiplication does not happen where John says it happens. John has it happening at the location of the second one. So it's believed that John the evangelist combined both stories. But there's something important that John picks up. And it's after the multiplication in verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew to the hills by himself. And when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Okay? So there's the, the, the story, yes, is combined, but parts of the story are picked up here. And so it's in this context that, John is, uh, that Jesus is teaching about the bread of life following the multiplication of the loaves and fishes. And something very interesting, if you turn, well, in my Bible, one page, after the uh, discourse on the bread of life. This is my, um, the, 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 I will give you my flesh to eat and my blood to drink. Notice where it happens. Chapter 6, verse 59. This he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Okay? So he's right there in that context that John 6 fits into the story. And what do they want to do? What do they want to do? They want to take him off and make him king. So immediately it says, he goes up to the hills and the apostles go down, uh, go down to the water and get out of Dodge. Right? Turn back to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to, Mark says, to Bethsaida. Again, crossing the water, crossing to the other side of the Jordan. Okay? I don't know if I even have the, um, the slide here for you. Okay? I don't. But Jesus is going to go now up into this cave to pray. Verse 46, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up into the hills to pray. Again, that cave is located like maybe a five-minute walk, ten-minute walk from the place where he multiplied the loaves and fishes. Okay. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. Why do you think Jesus would send his apostles to the other side? He multiplies the loaves and fishes. The people are going crazy. There's crowds and crowds of people. Why do you think he'd send them to the other side at that moment? Not saying out. So they don't get arrested. Exactly. And Jesus goes and hides in this cave. And hiding in this cave, he has got an absolutely amazing view of the Sea of Galilee. It's like sitting on a throne over the sea. Jesus can see the storm roll in as the apostles are rowing out. Okay. The best, the, 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 I think the best um, description of what happens next uh, is given to us in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. Verse 22. 
Verse 22, Then he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. When he dismissed the crowds, and after he dismissed the crowds, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was many furlongs distant from the land, beaten by the waves. The wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. This is a picture that I took on a boat when I was on the Sea of Galilee. And I'll tell you, there's nothing quite more mystical than being out there on the boat when that wind is coming across the waters. You can imagine them seeing this guy coming in the midst of the storm, coming out of the fog, okay? And they thought it was a ghost. Where am I? Yeah, 26, 27. But immediately he spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I who have no, I, as I have no fear. And Peter answered, Lord, if it is you, bid me come to, to you on the water. And Jesus said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, O man of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. This is very interesting because Jesus has sent his apostles across the sea to Bethsaida, not to Gennesaret. Gennesaret is not across the sea. Gennesaret is just barely south of Capernaum. I was going to read you the text from um, from uh, from. Uh, Barjol Pixner, but he, he says that at this time there are storms which pick up on the sea almost on an instant and blow across the water. And what must have happened is the apostles were out here on the water that the storm came in from the east, blowing at them so hard they could not row anymore. Jesus came out there to them and brought them back to the seashore. And the closest landing place, once they've launched from, from Capernaum, is Gennesaret. Okay, so they come back then to Gennesaret, to that area. What do you think is going to happen? They're still in the territory, no, not of Philip, but of Herod Antipas. Okay? And notice in Mark, going back to Mark then, chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Immediately, they land in Gennesaret, verse 50, sorry, look at chapter 6, six verse 53, you'll see they land in Gennesaret, and in chapter 7, verse 1, immediately, when the Pharisees gathered together to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands defiled, that is, unwashed. So immediately the Pharisees come and begin to argue with him again. Galilee will become extremely hot for Jesus. It's become very dangerous. But notice something about where these guys are from. Where does it say they're from? From Jerusalem. Galilee may become dangerous for Christ, but all the while while things are become tumultuous in Galilee, it's going to become even worse in Judea for Christ because they're going to bring reports back to him. All right. Chapter 7, verse 24. Chapter 7, verse 24. Again, they had meant to go over Bethsaida. They get blown back to Gennesaret. So you think he's going to stay around? No way. In chapter 7, verse 24, it says they went up to the area of Tyre and Sidon. Here's the area of Tyre, basically to Phoenicia. 
to Phoenicia. So Jesus leaves the area. It's too dangerous for him now. He journeys to Tyre and Sidon and, and, and gets out of the way. Um, in verse 31, verse 31, um, then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee through the region of the Decapolis. The region of the Decapolis is right here. All right? And what has happened right here in our story just recently? Over here, you remember, it's the land of the Gerasenes. And what was the demoniac supposed to do? Stay quiet? No, he's supposed to tell everybody. So Jesus comes back from here, comes down on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And what do you think he's going to find? Mark chapter 7, verse, um, well, from verse 31 down, says that he uh, met a man who was deaf. Okay? In verse 35, and his ears were open and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Now stop, because Matthew tells us a little more. Turn with me very quickly to Matthew chapter 15. Keep your hand there in Mark. Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, uh, verse 29. And Jesus went on from there and passed along the Sea of Galilee. He went up into the hills and sat down there. And there is over here. Okay, in that same region, the Decapolis, and bringing with the cra- great crowds came to him. Notice the difference. All right, why did the great crowds come to him, Ginger? Because the do- demoniac had done his job, right? And now he's famous. And now what? He's going to get himself in trouble, isn't he? They're going to be out to get him. So l- listen to this. The great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the maimed, the blind, the dumb, many others, and they put them at his feet and he healed them so that the throng wondered when they saw the dumb speaking, the maimed uh, whole, the lame walking, the blind seen, and they glorified the God of Israel. Notice how it says, it doesn't say they glorified Yahweh, they glorified the Lord. No, they glorified the God of Israel. Why is this important? Because they're pagans. Okay, they're pagans. And what does Mark tell us now? Going back to Mark, to that, he, Mark only gives one example of who he healed. And what does he say to this man in verse 35? His ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. This is chapter 7, verse 35 and 36. And he charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Okay, so now Jesus is in trouble in both sides of the sea, all right, and his time is going to come, uh, uh, come to an end. His ministry is going to come to an end in Galilee very quickly. Okay. Notice now in chapter 8, chapter 8, in those days when again a great crowd had gathered, they... Um, um, and they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to them and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. Okay? This second multiplication takes place over here among the Gerasenes. So just as he did over here where he healed and then he fed them, the second, um, the second miracle takes place in the multiplication of the loaves and fishes over here. You can see, oh, in fact, there you can see the Decapolis. Remember it says he went from, from Phoenicia down through the Decapolis. Okay, um, And right here in Kersey is where he healed the demoniac. And it's there you can go today and see the location of the second multiplication of the loaves and fishes. 
And looking across the sea then, what do you see? What do you see? You see the Capernaum, right? And Tabga in that whole area, looking from the other side. Jesus um, is now going to get in a boat because if he doesn't, he's going to get himself in a lot of trouble. Notice in, in uh, chapter 8, verse 10, right after the multiplication, he sent them away and immediately he got into the boat and his disciples went to the district of Dalmanutha. Dalmanutha is here. It's the same as Magadan or Magdala, the town where Mary Magdalene comes from. It's just south of Capernaum, about 10 miles south of Capernaum. The Pharisees, and what do you think happens? Jesus gets in a boat. He goes right back there. And who's waiting to attack him? The Pharisees. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. He left them and getting into the boat, again he departed to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they discussed it with one another, saying, We have no bread. And being aware of it, Jesus said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, seven. And he said to them, do you not understand? And they came to Bethsaida. Immediately, as soon as Jesus comes up the Sea of Galilee, okay, from Dalmanutha, he comes up, and, but he doesn't stay here. He goes to Bethsaida, and immediately from Bethsaida, he gets out of town and goes to the town of Caesarea Philippi. You'll see that in verse 27. Verse 27. It's chapter 8, verse 27. He goes to Caesarea Philippi. Where is Caesarea Philippi? Ah, wait a minute. Before I go to Caesarea Philippi, I have to point out one thing to you. Uh, Okay, we don't have time for it, so I'm not going to develop it. But in another gospel... Um, there's a split among the Pharisees and some will come to him, some of the Pharisees will come to him and say to him explicitly, Herod is seeking to kill you. Get out of here. And Jesus does. Jesus gets out of there. He goes up to Caesarea Philippi and there, um, that that famous exchange with Jesus, who do men say that I am? And then he says, and who do you say that I am? He says, thou art the rock. And it's within Uh, within the shadow of this pagan temple that it's believed that Jesus said it. It's the headwaters of the Jordan River. And it was the place of the worship. You can see them carved out in the rock where they put the the pagan gods. It was the location of the worship of the god Pan. And there in this cave, the headwaters of the Jordan, the pagan peoples would throw their babies to sacrifice to the god Pan. And it's there that Jesus proclaims Peter to be the rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Jesus will come back um, into, the area, into the area of Galilee, but not, but not before going to the Mount of Transfiguration. 
um, in Mark chapter 9, verse 2. And you can see from Caesarea Philippi, he's going to come down the road, the way of the sea, to Mount Tabor for the transfiguration. And I showed you this slide before. Okay, We've had talks on the transfiguration, so I won't say anything about it now, except that it is quite an amazing place. You can see the view there. Okay. We need to finish up, and good thing I am on my last page of notes, so if you can just give me 30 seconds. Okay. Turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 9. Sorry, Jane. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be received up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he set messengers ahead of him who went to enter into the village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But the people would not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. It's a biblical way of saying he had put his, he, he was done with everything else. He's going to Jerusalem to be crucified. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to bid fire come down from heaven and to consume them? We're going to come down to chapter 10, verse 10. And Jesus said to his apostles, Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it shall be more tolerable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For, it is my, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, <coughs> Will you be exalted in heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Jesus will now make his way through the Jordan River, leaving behind him those towns in which he had healed their blind, their paralytics, where he had driven out the demons, and they had rejected him. And he will make his way to Jerusalem, where the Son of Man will be delivered up. Thank you very much for your attention. Uh, last week, you mentioned that uh, the ten northern tribes made up Samaria, and I assume Galilee as well. Uh, when I study maps, I find a boundary between those two, between Galilee and Samaria, but not not a boundary between Samaria and Judea. Uh, Judea. So what's, right. what's happening? So the, there's you know different maps from different times saying that you know this is this is the map as it stood at the time of Christ. But what I think maybe a little bit more to your point, is to understand that Samaria was, this is now on, right? That Samaria was the, the original capital of the northern ten tribes when they split from Judah. And you can pick that up in your Bibles um, in, uh, in uh, first, I'm going to go out on a limb, first Kings, although it, it probably is second Kings. 
and I'm just going to let the Lord kind of take me here. I know where it is on my page, and I'm sure I'm going to find the right text here eventually. Uh, it is in Second Kings. It has to be. So just give me a second. And I'll tell you what's going on is that, um, that Samaria becomes the capital of the northern ten tribes. And uh, I'll find it there eventually. And by extension then, it is the name which is given to all of the northern area. Galilee is an area which was, as I quoted to you in the Old Testament, last time in the Old Testament, it was known, but it really becomes a political, uh, a political region then at the time of Christ with Herod. Okay, um, but you can see this. I'll just don't turn there, but it's in First Kings chapter sixteen, verse twenty-four. The king of Israel, which is at that time the northern ten tribes split off, uh, buys the hill. Um, it says that he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents. Okay, Samaria, Shemer, Shemaria. Okay, it was the hill that was owned by Shemer, and he and the king of the northern ten tribes bought it, and then by extension, it was a whole northern area. So when you hear about the Samaritans, you're talking about the really the the, the pagan people of the uh, that were left over from those northern ten tribes that had been crossbred if you will with the pagan Assyrians which had come into the area they were like half Jewish half breeds okay and they were also pantheists they worshiped the god of Israel but they also worshiped uh, foreign gods pagan gods um and and at by the time then that Jesus comes the Samaritans have really kind of shrunk in size and they're living right in that central area between Galilee and Jerusalem Galilee has been uh uh um uh reconquered right by the descendants of the of the um Maccabees which we talked about last time reconquered and repopulated okay so primarily up in that region at the time there Capernaum and Bethsaida and that whole area was populated by Jews. But if you came south, that central area where you see Samaria usually on maps, that area was still controlled by the so-called Samaritan people who gathered themselves around uh, Mount Gerizim where they worshipped, where they had a temple and they worshipped the false gods. That's where Jesus met the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well at the base of that mountain. You can still go there today. Okay, at the base of the mountain is Jacob's well, and that's where Jesus went. In the shadow of that pagan temple, Jesus begins to talk to the woman about what, where they will worship, right? And the woman says, you, you say you'll worship in Jerusalem, we worship here on this mountain. Okay, all right. Okay. I was wondering um, why it is that John, uh, John the Baptist asked the question as to whether or not Jesus was the Messiah or was there another one to come i mean he had baptized him he had recognized him there yeah you know i i don't know the answer to that except to say that that jesus hadn't come out i is always there's always christ where he's doing the work and then but he's holding back from the full proclamation and then little moments where you see that come out so john the baptist is in 
is in prison by this point, and it says that his followers are still coming to him, right? They, he wants to send them all to Jesus, but he wants to make sure for certain. So I don't know. I mean, he's, he's a human. <laughs> you know, he's, he's, he's a person. He's dealing with this thing. Could this, is this really the Messiah? And if it is, what's, what's he going to do, right? Is he, is he going to do what we expected the Messiah to do? Is he going to be a different kind of, different kind of king? And so Jesus proves himself. So I don't know the answer to your question, but I think you just, the humanness of John the Baptist is very much present in that text. And also that desire to want to send his apostles to go ahead, to go with him if it, he truly is the Messiah. If you'll permit me a theory, I think he already told them he was, so send them to Jesus and let Jesus tell them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, why not? Okay, I, that's, that's, that's good. I like that. I like that. Uh, yeah, so I had a, a, just a very quick question. Uh, you mentioned uh, talking about the Sermon on the Mount comes with specific instructions, and you're reading something, but it wasn't uh, math, It wasn't Mark 11. It was probably before that. The Sermon on the Mount comes with what? You, this, you said the Sermon on the Mount comes with specific instructions. Uh, it's from yes, from the Gospel of Matthew. From the Gospel of Matthew, following the Sermon on the Mount. If you read in the Gospel of Matthew, um, I'll give you the text here. The sermon, uh, the, the classic Sermon on the Mount, right? blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, is all in Matthew chapter 5. But, but you want to read Matthew chapter 5 in the context of the text which come after that and ultimately of his sending the apostles out. So I believe that, 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 that much of that instruction is given to those who are going to go out and, and because they're going to go out, they're going to need to know how to go out, right? They're going to, they're going to be living away from Jesus. So he's got all his instructions about how to do it. Okay? I told you I'd read that text from Egeria, the, the Spanish nun. Um, is it a good question? Okay. Um, she says this. Okay, again, this is like 383 to 395, right in there. So very, very early. In Capernaum, a church was made out of the house of the prince of the apostles, the walls of which are standing to this day just as they were. That is where the Lord healed the paralytic. So now we see the ruins, but she saw the house still standing. The synagogue is also there in which the Lord healed the possessed man. The visitor climbs up to it by several steps. This synagogue is built out of squared blocks of masonry. We saw those blocks, huh? Um, not far from there, the stone steps can be seen on which the Lord stood. Um, and here is a reference to the, to, the, to the appearance after the resurrection, and you can go and see those stone steps um, at that church still today. Above the lake, there is also a field of grass with, with, with much hay and several palm trees. By it are seven springs, Tabga, seven springs, each of which supplies a huge quantity of water. In the, in the field, the Lord fed the people with the five loaves of bread. The stone on which the Lord placed the bread has been made into an altar. Okay, that's the stone that we saw, right? Um, visitors take pieces of rock from this stone for their welfare, and it brings benefit to everyone. Along the walls of the church runs the public highway where the Apostle Matthew sat to collect the taxes. On the hill which rises nearby is a grotto, a little cave, right? Um, 
upon which the Lord ascended when he taught the Beatitudes. So he went up on top of the grotto, and on top of that grotto is that whole area I showed you right above that little cave. Um, so I don't know, when I read that, I just get I chills because this is, you know, 16, 1700 years ago that a nun's writing, and you can still do it. And the thing about that cave, um, and same about the Colony of the Apostles, there's no, there's no uh, pathway or there's no concrete steps to get to it. So the, so the tourists don't go there, but you can go there. And um, it's just amazing when you see it, and it's like, it's beautiful because there's, some, there's something pristine about it, you know, something beautiful and hidden about it. Um, and while everybody's going to the more recent locations that, that have been built up, you can go and see these wonderful places and go and pray there in the morning, and uh, really phenomenal. You have a question coming in from online. It's from Anne-Marie McNew in Texas. <laughs> she says the St. Joseph's Atlas of the Bible shows that the transfiguration occurred at Mount Hermon north of Caesarea Philippi but then it also shows it occurring at Mount Tabor as you mentioned both instances point to the same reference in Matthew why the discrepancy or depiction um, of the transfiguration, be transfiguration being at two different locations yeah Mount Hermon Mount Hermon is the highest point uh, in fact, it keeps snow on it even into the into the summer months, um, and it's the snow from Hermon that really feeds the Jordan, feeds the Sea of Galilee. Um, and so, some have said, and, he, and many scholars, and even it, it goes, it even is in uh, liturgical texts. Rejoice, Hermon, Mount Hermon, for the Feast of Transfiguration. So uh, there is a tradition going very early, but on Mount Tabor. Um, there's, there's also, uh, two ancient monasteries that were built there, which is usually an indication that you're in the right place. So, you know, I, I, I'm not gonna wade too much into it, except to say this, that it is on Mount Tabor, and you can go listen to my talk on the Transfiguration, it's on our website, I think it is. Um, the, the, the mystery of the Transfiguration is Christ's enthronement as king. And the Father's confirmation, uh, behold my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It is his, his enthronement as king. Why is that important? Because Tabor and the valley that was below it was the site of, may, of all the great battles of salvation history. Okay? And so for Christ to be up on Tabor, looking down on this valley where all of these battles had taken place. And now Christ is going to come down. And Luke says that after the transfiguration, he says, he put his face to Jerusalem. Okay? And when you go up on Mount Tabor, you get a sense of it's in the broader context of history. The broader context of what Christ was doing. To go up on that mountain to, to be revealed to his closest apostles as king. And then to go be enthroned as king in Jerusalem. Now, why would he be revealed as king in Tabor and enthroned in king in Jerusalem? Because in ancient Israel, there were three times when a king was anointed. The first anointing was always privately with the prophet. Okay? In Jesus' case, at the Jordan River with John the Baptist. The second anointing was always in the context of his closest family, just his tribe. And who does Jesus take up Tabor with him? His closest friends. Okay. And, uh, 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 and the third 
anointing was now not just within his tribe, but within all the twelve tribes of Israel. And there he goes to Jerusalem to be enthroned upon the cross. So, um, for me, that's a little bit more important that whether it's as Tabor or Herman, but I don't know, I like Tabor better. And, uh, and the, and the churches are built there. Whereas I don't know that on Herman there is a, there is a, um, I don't think there's an, an old monastery there dedicated to the transfiguration. I don't think there is. Okay. Any other questions? No, I'll leave. Let me just leave with this that if you want to go to the Holy Land in August, I'd love to have you come. Um, I know it's expensive, but I'll tell you that this will be my fifth trip. Um, and last time I went, I paid my own way. Now, if I can go with a large group, I get to go as your teacher and, and guide, so I get a free ticket. But last time, and we were a very small group, I still paid my own way, even though I'd already gone three times, because I'll tell you, it's worth it. If there's one place in this world I'd love to live and be on the Sea of the Galilee, it's my favorite place to return year after year. And every time I go, I learn more and more and more and more places open. So I just gave you that invitation, and there are uh, forms in the back. God bless you, and thank you for coming these past two weeks. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.